You could be seated. Well, we are in Genesis chapter 17 this morning. Genesis chapter 17, as we work our way through this first book of the Bible. As you're turning to Genesis 17, I'm going to ask, when is the last time you thought about the Treaty of Paris from 1783? Lee probably has thought about it recently. Where is Lee? Well, most of us don't know much or anything about the Treaty of Paris, understandably so. I learned some things about it this week. It is the oldest and first treaty ever signed by the U.S. It is still in effect today. It ended the American Revolutionary War. It was King George III's first acknowledgement of the 13 colonies as being free, independent of the crown's control. One could argue that though the Declaration of Independence was written and signed seven years before, our independence was still somewhat up in the air until the Revolutionary War ended and until Great Britain agreed with our sovereignty. And that moment was the Treaty of Paris, even though you didn't think about it much all these years. The Treaty of Paris was kind of a big deal. And so was the Abrahamic Covenant in the Bible. The Abrahamic Covenant is kind of a big deal in the Bible. The promises of the Abrahamic Covenant are stated and repeated over ten times in the book of Genesis. And the narrative of the Abrahamic Covenant in its fulfillment occupies Genesis 12 to 50, the majority of the book. And of course, that theme, those promises are what lead us right in to the book of Exodus. And from there, they just fan out throughout the whole Bible. As I wrote in an article for our DSC weekly email just a week or two ago, I said that the promises given to Abraham in Genesis actually stretch to the other end of our Bibles. They won't reach their completion, their consummation, until the end of our Bibles at the end of time. And the relevance of the Abrahamic covenant, it's relevant. It's relevant not just back then, but today. It's relevant not just for Jews and even not just for Christians. It's relevant because of its significance and its potential benefits. It is relevant for the whole world. And so we've been taking time to study the Abrahamic covenant in the book of Genesis as we work our way through it. And while there are ten occasions where the Abrahamic covenant promises are repeated, the big three, you should just know this, the big three are chapter 12, 15, and 17. Everyone in this room, every Christian should know that. 12, 15, 17. Those are the big three of the Abrahamic covenant. And today we come to the third of the big three in Genesis 17. Now having already covered chapter 12, and really Abrahamic covenant's also in 13, but then really big again in 15, the repetition of the Abrahamic covenant in this book can feel redundant. You'll hear me say some things today that you'll be thinking, 
I think we've already covered that. Hasn't that already been stated? We know that. In fact, I've heard it more than once. But remember that the repetition reminds us, it should remind us how important this thing is, how important these promises are. It also shows us the kindness of our God in reminding his people again and again about what he said he would do, especially as they wait. They wait years, decades, generations for God to actually do what he promised. And so they need the repetition And there's also the expansion of the promises. Not in every case, but often when it's told again, the promises actually get bigger. Something's added to it. Each occasion is unique. And so, yes, Genesis 17 repeats many things that came before it, but it's also unique with several things that are new. We'll actually be looking at Genesis 17 and the first half of 18 today, but let's start by just reading Genesis 17, the whole chapter. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make a covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, 
Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety-nine years old, bear a child? And Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I, I, have, I have heard you, and behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins. That very day, as God had said to him, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Again, we'll get into chapter 18 a little bit later, but that's enough for now. And here we have, especially in the first eight verses a reiteration of the previously stated promises of earlier chapters. Some of this is not new to us. Abraham will have a son, a promised son. He will have also a great offspring, a multitude of people. These people will inherit the land of Canaan as a possession to be a special place of dwelling with God and of his presence, reminiscent of the garden. Now that much we've heard before. But by chapter 17, it's now been 24 years since God first called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees back in chapter 12. It has now been 13 years since the end of the last chapter, chapter 16. And at the ripe age of 99, not much has changed. Not much has changed. And yet God keeps reiterating the same promises, even enlarging and adding to them. So what's new here? First, there's a new name. In the first eight verses, we could summarize that under this heading of a new name. No longer shall your name be Abram, it'll be Abraham. The name Abram means exalted father. That's promising enough. But Abraham means father of a multitude. And as God explains, not only the name change in the the meaning of the the words themselves, but he explains in the second half of verse 5 why the name changed. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. That's new. Before Genesis 17, Abram was told he would be a great nation, 
And from him would come an offspring, a multitude. But now he's told he will be a father to a multitude of nations, plural. Of course, Christians should be thinking big picture here. Because we know that Abraham is the true father, not just of the Jews, not ultimately, He is the true father of any who follow in Abraham's footsteps of faith, regardless of who their father was, Jew or Gentile. That's Galatians 3. If that's new to you, read Galatians 3. The reality that Paul pens in Galatians 3 wasn't invented by the apostle Paul. It wasn't his reinterpretation of the Old Testament. It was there all along that Abram would be a father to nations, plural. That's us. That's relevant. That's missions. That's why we witness. But back to Abraham. His very name signifies all this, and his new name will remind him every time he speaks it, every time he hears it, he is going to be a father of nations, a father of a multitude. Now remember, in this culture, someone's name and its meaning was way more significant than our culture. We name kids things because we've heard of some other kid with that name and we like that kid, so maybe it'll be like that kid. Or, oh, I haven't heard that name before. Why don't we go with that name? I haven't heard it before. Or how about we'll do a little take on a normal name and make it a weird name. That's how we name kids these days. But back then, names were much more significant. They were almost prophetic. They were thought to be almost prophetic. So imagine the awkwardness that for decades, Abram introduced himself to strangers. I'm Abram, exalted father. And no doubt people would ask, exalted father? I mean, that's better than father of the year. How many kids do you have? None yet. He'll introduce himself as Abraham now, father of multitudes. And people will no doubt ask, Oh, really? How many? And we know from chapter 16 last week that he does, at this point, have one son, Ishmael. But that son was not of his real or first wife, Sarai. So it's not the son of promise, not the son born out of God's provision, but a son born out of manipulation and doubt. And so he's got a new name the father of a multitude. Incidentally, Sarai gets a new name later on. Verse 15, she will no longer be called Sarai, which means princess. She'll now be called Sarah, which means my princess. And boy, you just gotta love that name Sarah, don't you? I mean, to have a wife named Sarah. Go looking for one of those. 
A few other things are new in this reiteration of the covenant, along with Abraham's new name. God reveals himself to Abram or Abraham as God Almighty in verse 1. El Shaddai, the God who is all-powerful. And you can understand how important it would be for Abraham to keep this in mind, that God, the Lord, is God Almighty. The one who speaks these promises to him, these seemingly impossible promises. He's all-powerful. As it'll say later in chapter 18, and we'll get there later today, that rhetorical question will be asked, verse 14, I believe it is, is anything too hard for the Lord? Notice Abram right at the beginning fell on his face when God spoke to him. God has spoken to him multiple times before this. But he's not used to that. He's not familiar with that in a bad familiar way. He's certainly not flippant about it. Apparently, the more he knows this God, the more worshipful and awestruck he responds to his presence and to his words. Abraham is told, verse 6, kings shall come from you. That's new and significant. It's a theme that develops a whole lot more later on. In Genesis 49, it says, The scepter, the ruling staff, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff, until tribute comes to him. To him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. Whoa, that's big. Or how about Numbers 24, Balaam's prophecy. He said, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel, and it will crush God's enemies. Oh, that's real big. And those themes, of course, take later significance. A thousand years later, with King David in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, and a thousand years after David, when David's greater son and king, Jesus, shows up, the king of kings and lord of lords. But the seedlings of all that are right here in Genesis 17. Kings shall come from you. Also, notice verse 7 that God says, I will be God to you. And he says of Abraham's offspring, I will be their God. So this covenant is relational, it is personal, it is intimate. Personal pronouns are appropriate, you, your, there. And in that relational covenantal context, God calls Abram to walk before me and be blameless. Walk before me, like Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day, and like Enoch walked with God, and Noah walked with God, and like Christians are to walk with their Lord. So Abraham is called to walk before me and be blameless, which sounds like be sinless, be perfect, but it doesn't mean that. It means Walk before him in honesty, in credibility, and integrity, 
not with utter hypocrisy. It's in the next section that we see a most significant way that Abraham and his offspring will need to be blameless. Secondly, there's a new sign. A new sign. Look at verse 9. God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring. This is my covenant which you shall keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Verse 11, this shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Now the covenant was promised in Genesis 12 and 15. The covenant was enacted, we could say, with sacrifice in chapter 15. Remember, where God himself walks through the entrails of the slain animal, showing that he will fulfill the terms of the covenant himself. It's been enacted, but now the covenant is ratified in chapter 17 with this sign of circumcision. That's what it's called, a sign. It signifies something. What does it signify? Well, three things. On a very basic level, it was a matter of obedience. It signified obedience. Abraham was to keep the covenant in this way. Secondly, it was a matter of identity. It identified God's people. It marked them out in the world. Circumcision wasn't completely foreign to the other nations of ancient Near East. That's probably why Abraham doesn't stop to ask, wait, what is circumcision? What is this? What, What is this word? No, he doesn't ask. But it wasn't instituted in the other nations as widely or as early as it is here. And so it identified God's people as being God's people. And thirdly, maybe most importantly, it symbolized the need for a removal of the flesh. It was a literal removal of the flesh, right? But it signified a removal of the spiritual flesh, the sin nature. At least it showed the need for that. It couldn't actually deal with the spiritual flesh. It couldn't actually fix the problem of sin, but it pointed to the problem in a vivid way. And that's why elsewhere, God speaks of the greater need of circumcised hearts. You say, well, circumcised hearts, what is that? Well, it's not literal. It's not physical. Deuteronomy 30 The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants to love the Lord your God. Jeremiah 4, verse 4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskins of your heart. Even in the New Testament, Romans 2. There Paul can say, one is not a Jew who is one merely outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward. But he is a true Jew, we could say, who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart. That's what we need. We need what the New Testament calls the new birth. Regeneration. Being born again. 
We need something more than external ritual, even the most sacrificial and painful of them. We need heart surgery. We need forgiveness, yes, but we also need heart change. And that's what that passage in Jeremiah 31 is all about, which Marshall read for us earlier. The days are coming when I will make a new covenant. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, their desires. I will imprint upon them my ways. And I will be their God and they shall be my people and they will be forgiven. Well, Jeremiah is writing that 600 years before Jesus shows up. But then Jesus shows up. And one night, the night he was to be betrayed, he had a meal with his disciples. It was the last Passover, but also what we call the, it's the first Lord's Supper. He said in Luke 22, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. He's fulfilling that promise in Jeremiah 31 from 600 years before. And so eventually in God's plan, every Christian should know this, there's a new, new sign in fact, there are two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And that's why circumcision is no longer required for God's people. That's why it's no longer needed. The thing to which it pointed has come. It has served its purpose. That's what the Jerusalem Council was all about in Acts 15. That's what the whole book of Galatians is all about. So that's where all this stuff is going in God's big picture. That's where the theme of circumcision eventually lands. It lands with an expiration. But back to Abraham in Genesis 17 and look down at verses 22 to 27. We'll just for now skip a little bit. Verses 15 to 21, we'll come back to that. So just to group like things together, look at verse 22 and following, and I want you to note the obedience that's emphasized after God told Abraham what to do. When he'd finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God said to him. And it's even emphasized more after that. Do you see obedience, wholehearted obedience, immediate obedience? It's like we used to tell our kids when they were toddlers. Obedience is immediately, happily, unto the Lord. You still need that when you're not a toddler, but toddlers need that in them every single day. And Abraham shows us that kind of obedience. Of course, for Abraham, his obedience didn't entail picking up his toys, but picking up a flint and doing circumcision. A 99-year-old guy was circumcised that day. A 13-year-old son was circumcised that day. 
a whole household of men were circumcised that day because he believed God and obeyed. Now, it's important to see where this moment falls in Abraham's life and in his experience with God. When is it? What came before? Paul makes this point in Romans 4 using our passage. Chase was leading us to Romans 4 just a couple of weeks ago, but we have to go back there. And listen to this. Romans 4, 9, Paul says Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. That's referring to Genesis 15. Chase dealt with that. But now Paul unpacks it. He says, how then was his righteousness counted to him? He says, was it before or after he'd been circumcised? Huh, where's he going with this? He says, it was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. In other words, Genesis 15 comes before Genesis 17. And that matters. Abraham's faith and the judicial declaration of righteousness from God, that's Genesis 15, came before his obedience to circumcise his household. So he wasn't declared righteous by God on account of his obedience, on account of his great sacrifice, but on account of his faith. And obedience flowed from his faith. So, so know this, know this. We can't be made right with God through our obedience or even extreme sacrifice. We are made right with God through grace. Because of Jesus, received only through faith. And that kind of Grace, that free grace, amazing grace, transforms a person. It changes them from the inside out. And so Christians want to follow the Lord in baptism, identifying with his death and burial and resurrection. And this is what you do if you become a Christian. What's next, you might say? Get baptized, get a Bible. And let's go. It's why we gather once a month as a church, usually on Wednesday nights for our Lord's Supper service. He calls us to do this in remembrance of me. We want to. We need it. That's why many of us got up this morning and though it was cold and windy, we came here. Because he tells us to assemble and we need it. Now thirdly, and this one will move more quickly, a new son. Don't forget there's a new son in those verses we skipped, verses 15 to 21. And there God specifies what might have been left up in the air from chapter 16. Remember Ishmael from chapter 16? He was born of the union of Abram and Hagar, who was Sarah's handmaid, so now, 13 years later, as chapter 17 begins, Abram, Abraham has a son. 
It's not under the most ideal circumstances. But will it do? Remember that Chase said last week that up to that point in chapter 16, it hadn't yet been specified that Sarah would be the mother of this promised lineage, only that Abraham would be the father. But now in chapter 17, God indeed specifies that Sarai, now Sarah, will be the mother of the promised son to come. Sarah shall be her name. Not Sarai, princess. Call her my princess, Abraham. And I will bless her, and I will give you a son by her. And from her shall come nations and kings. Notice verse 17. Abraham then fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? They're both past their child-producing years. Abraham knows it. Whatever happened 13 years ago with Hagar, he doesn't have it in him anymore, and he knows it. And so Abraham suggests Ishmael as a possible alternative, one certainly more feasible since he's already around. But God says, no, there will be blessings for Ishmael, but not within the covenant, and he won't be of this promised line and offspring. I will establish my covenant with Isaac. Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Whoa, it's within a year. After 24 years of waiting, the timing is now getting clearer and nearer. Does it know exactly when? But within a year is pretty good. Remember, it's right after this moment in verse 22 that God departs and Abraham gets a circumcising. So his obedience in circumcision was clearly a response of faith, trusting in what God had just said about the promised son. He apparently believed God. Oh, not at first, and not without some wrestling in his doubt. Remember, he laughed. He said to himself, I think that's humanly impossible at our age. But God insisted, and so Abraham relented. Now listen to a little bit more from Romans 4, because Paul isn't done talking about Genesis 17 there. Verse 17 of Romans 4 As it is written, I have made you, Abraham, the father of many nations. That's our passage. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, Paul wrote, wrote, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, like Isaac. In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. No, 
Unbelief made him, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Don't you love that? That's what faith is. Faith is not wishing. Faith is not hoping so. Faith is not just positivity. Faith is believing based on something that's not yet seen, but God has said, and that's enough. Fully convinced God can do what he said, even though all the odds are stacked against him, although it is humanly impossible to make babies at 100. At least I think it is. You can Google that later and find out. But, it, but in Abraham's case, it was the case. The Bible insists that God has already done what he promised. Not all of it, but a lot of it. Oh, what a privilege to stand at this moment in history. At this moment in the plan of God. With so much in the rearview mirror. Stamped. Fulfilled. Fulfilled, fulfilled. More to come? Yes. But with so much in the rearview mirror, we have less reason to doubt than Abraham did. Isaac was born. That's later on, Genesis 21. The story of Genesis goes on. The narrative, the Old Testament. It, it ebbs and it flows, but the promises never die out. They never fall flat. In fact, you come to the New Testament, and Paul can say this about Jesus, 2 Corinthians 1.20. All the promises of God are yes in him. Put a check mark next to every promise God makes on account of Jesus. He's the check mark. He's the fulfillment. He's the promised seed of Abraham, the king through whom the nations receive blessing. Isaac was a promised one and a necessary one. It's got to start somewhere. But Isaac was not the promised one. Jesus is God is able to do what he promised. God has done already so much of what he promised. And that's where we find our hope today. By looking to Jesus, specifically at his cross and resurrection, where he died for our sins and rose victoriously on the third day. We put our hope there. We bank on that. We have faith in what the Bible tells us about that. And we're changed. Not just forgiven, but transformed. And now we follow him and walk with him. We've seen a new name, a new sign, a new son. And now fourthly and lastly, as we turn to chapter 18 for just a bit. We have a new encounter, a new encounter. And this is going to feel a little bit like a tack-on. It's going to feel like we're beginning a new sermon at the end of this one. 
But I think this material actually goes with those promises of chapter 17 and specifically Sarah's connection to the promises in chapter 17. So let's read this strange but wonderful story in chapter 18. And the Lord appeared to him, Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? He said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, Shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. What a story. Who are these three men of mystery to begin with? There's something divine about them. Did you notice that? Verse 1 says, The Lord appeared, all caps, Yahweh. But then Abraham saw three men standing in front of him, apparently appearing out of nowhere. Verse 2, Abraham bowed himself to the earth. Literally, it's the word for worship. Verse 5, it's plural, they said. Verse 9, again, they said, plural. But then verse 10, the Lord said. Verse 13, the Lord said. What is going on here? Well, some have suggested that this has to be an Old Testament appearance of the triune God. God in three persons, literally, well, that's what it says. That's what it sounds like. But, hold on, these three men continue in the story for another couple of chapters. And in chapter 19, verse 1, we learn that at least two of them are angels. Not angel of the Lord, capital A, capital L, just angels. So my best guess is that these three men make up, are made up of two angels and a divine appearance of God. 
This is another one of those visible manifestations of God before Jesus ever took on flesh. It doesn't specify that Jesus was the man in the middle or something like that, but the divine and the men, the plural and the singular, runs throughout. And whatever the precise arrangement of these three beings, Abraham recognizes something special, something heavenly. He runs to them. He bows before them. He addresses them as Lord, singular. And then he feverishly goes about providing hospitality. I mean, it's comical, isn't it? It's co- the 99-year-old Abraham is running to and fro, trying to figure out how to arrange some food and drink. He quickly went to Sarah. He told her, quick, three seas of flour. He ran to get the calf. He had it prepared quickly. And then he put it before them. And he stood there. And they ate. It's just bizarre and wonderful. You can almost picture him still out of breath. All that running, all that food gathering. They're eating and drinking under the shade. And Abram's just there to soak it all in. Abraham did what we should want to do in God's presence. Stick around. Soak it in. Enjoy it. That's what people did around Jesus in the gospel accounts. They just kept having him over and making him food. Or even better, like Mary, sitting at his feet. But evidently, the meal is not the main reason for the arrival of these three beings. They say, where's Sarah? And they repeat the promise from the last chapter. About a year from now, Sarah will have a son. Sarah was eavesdropping. She heard this. Now, did Abraham not tell his wife what God had said from chapter 17? Probably not. He probably told her, but apparently she still struggled to believe it. It's still laughable to her now. And the narrator tells us, in fact, it's, it's setting up the suspense and creating some empathy for Sarah's slow faith because, verse 11, Sarah was old, advanced in years, the narrator says. The way of women, the way of giving birth, had ceased with Sarah. Verse 12, so Sarah laughed to herself and she stacks up the hindrances to her pregnancy. I'm worn out. My Lord is old. Shall I have pleasure? The way of pleasure has ceased for us, in other words. And she's post-menopause. And so she laughs to herself. Abraham laughed back in the last chapter, and perhaps his laugh was different. Maybe it wasn't with the same motives. We're not sure. He's not rebuked for his laughter, but Sarah is here. Verse 13, why did Sarah laugh? Is anything too hard for the Lord? promise is restated again in verse 14. This time next year she shall have a son. Three times now they've been told this time marker about next time, about 
this time next year. She denies laughing. She was afraid. Now what she should have done in her doubt, being caught, laughing with doubt, she should have acknowledged it. She should have brought it to the Lord. What do we do with our fears and doubts? Do we hide them from God, pretending he doesn't know them? He knows. Oh, he knows. He knows better than you do. Or do we bring them to God, since he already knows, and cares, and wants to help? The Lord knows. He knows us. He knows our hurts. He knows our doubts. He knows our weaknesses. We have a sympathetic high priest. He cares. He can help. He will help. But no games with him, okay? No games. No hiding stuff as if you could. He wants to be on the same page with you. He wants you on the page of reality with him. No games. That's why the Lord said in verse 15, no, you did laugh. It's meant to be ironic, even comical, but it is a rebuke. He knows she did laugh, even to herself. And that comes across even in the English, but also even more so in the Hebrew. The name Isaac means he laughs. Sarah will laugh again after her son is born in chapter 21, and she will say, everyone who hears about this is going to laugh. Isaac. And here she's laughing in doubt and disbelief, denying her laughter, and the Lord is saying, you did laugh. The name Isaac is everywhere. It's in the air. It's in God's declaration that he's coming and it's in Sarah's doubt and denial. Now let me wrap this up by bringing us back to that question in verse 14. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? And let me add to that two more questions that I think will help us apply that. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Let me ask you this. Do you doubt God's ability to do anything he pleases? Now notice I didn't say, do you doubt God's obligation to do everything you want him to do? I said, do you doubt God's ability to do anything that he pleases? He may not do X, Y, or Z, but we should never doubt his ability to do it. In fact, it's not even hard for him. He doesn't work up a sweat trying to get Sarah pregnant. He doesn't work up a sweat when he hurls planets into existence with the word of his mouth. Jeremiah 32, ah, Lord God, you've made the heavens and the earth with your outstretched hand. Nothing is too hard for you. In fact, our God loves, our God loves to show himself strong when things look the bleakest. When it looks the most impossible, our God loves to step in. Our God loves to show off in the best possible way. Not with bad motives, but for our good. He wants to show us more of himself. He's in heaven often saying, watch this. I think of the 
the Schroders, uh, who just closed on a house this week. And um, they moved here from Louisville, Kentucky, and they moved to Albuquerque at a time when our houses for sale were few and they were expensive and going up. And so they were putting offers on homes and someone was always beating them to it and paying more. And, and, and someone like Alex Schroeder, he doesn't have infinite money sitting around. It's not like he can just pay whatever it costs. It seemed impossible. I remember feeling for the Schroders like this angst and concern and worry. And I remembered God loves to show off. Our, our God loves to do crazy, incredible things. Like giving them the house next to the Jacobs. <laughs> what? Now, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing yet. We'll find out. But... Let's just say it's a good thing right now. Let's just say our God loves to do that kind of thing. That doesn't mean he'll give you your dream house. But our God has the ability to do anything. Second question. Do you doubt God's commitment to accomplish all that he promised? Do you doubt God's commitment? Oh, don't presume on God. Don't put words in his mouth. Don't say he promised things that he didn't promise. But where he's promised things in his word, they are true. And they are trustworthy. And here's where we can really buckle down, secure in faith, and bank on things, even while we wait our whole lives to see fulfillment. You have to know what God has and has not promised. I hope you know that. Do you know that God has promised that Jesus will return and make all things right? God has promised that there will be final justice in this world in a way that no court or UN could ever accomplish. God has promised that all of our trials are working together for our good. It doesn't feel like it, but it's true, even when we don't see it, and we can trust it. You have broken fellowship with God. You don't talk to him like you used to. Revelation 3, Jesus is at the door of your heart knocking to come in and enter and to sup with you believe it. He's that eager for you. I mean, do we believe that God is the God who welcomes prodigals home with open arms and slaughtered calves? Well, that's our God. Let us be fully convinced that our God is able to do all that he has promised. Let's pray.